Uh, take your Bible while you're right here and look in 2 Kings. 2 Kings in chapter 5. 2 Kings in chapter 5. There's a little story here about a man by the name of Naaman. Christ refers to this guy. But he says there was, you know, others that had leprosy, but they didn't get healed. But this one man who happens to be in Syria, Damascus, how's Syria doing today? Isn't that a good godly country today? But there was a man there. Look in verse 1. Now, Naaman, captain of the host of the king of Syria, was a great man with his master and honorable. And because by him the Lord had given deliverance unto Syria. He was also a mighty man in valor, but he was a leper. Hey, we got something wrong with him. Hey, he's great and all that, but he's just got leprosy. And you look at this and you think, well, here is a man in a different country. Does God know who's there? And yet the Bible says God gave him deliverance. God gave him victory. God used him. A man in another country. And while they were over there, they got this little Jewish girl and took her into captivity. And this little Jewish girl happened to make the statement, if he only knew the man of God in Israel, if he only knew. And lo and behold, it wasn't long before, you know, Naaman got everybody together and lo and behold, they're going down to, to Israel. And when they got there, all they did was ask the, the king, hey, uh, we come to get healed. He says, what, you're trying to start a war. I don't have any power. So anyway, he goes to the man of God, and Naaman was thinking, do you know who I am? Do you know who I am? <laughs> I did this the other day with somebody, and it, it, it came off pretty funny. You know, sometimes things work, sometimes things don't, don't work. And so I said, do you know who I am? <laughs> Would you call the security guard? There's a man down here that don't know who he is. But here he is standing outside the man of God. And he thought he would get up and come outside and, you know, after all, look who I am. But he wasn't impressed. And so he says, well, what do I have to do? He says, go up here into the river of Jordan and just dunk in the water seven times. And uh, this is where they got Duck Dynasty from. <laughs> he went and dunked himself in the water seven times. But he didn't want to do it. He says, the rivers over in Syria are cleaner than this river. This is an old muddy river. I've been here. It is. He says, um, Master, if you had asked something hard, if you had said, do this really hard, you would have done it. But he said something so simple. All you have to do is just dunk yourself in the water seven times. And he had the flesh of a baby. There's women still looking for this miracle anti-aging cream stuff. All you got to do is go to Israel and dunk yourself in the water seven times. See if that'll work. It, it worked with this guy. Cure him of leprosy. I bet he didn't look as old. It says the flesh of a little child. I mean, it was uh, incredible. So he says he was impressed. So you notice what he says there in verse 15. Excuse me. Just, just read verse 14. Then went he down and dipped himself seven times in Jordan, according to the saying of the man of God, and his flesh came again like unto the flesh of a little child. And he was clean. He didn't have leprosy anymore. And his skin, he looked probably younger. Wouldn't you like to have the secret to this? 
Well, why wouldn't God do that for everybody? Well, God doesn't do certain things for everybody. Now, wouldn't it have been a shame if Elijah told him, says, not only must you dip yourself in this water seven times, but you must keep dipping yourself in the water if you want to stay clean of leprosy. There are people who say, well, you can believe on Christ, but you got to keep believing. Because if you stop believing, he takes it away from you. So you've got to not only be dipped in the water, but you've got to keep on a dipping. Well, when does he get out of the water? He'd never get out of the water. You see, there's some things people just don't get. But I want you to see what he says here in verse 15. And he returned to the man of God. He and all his company came and stood before him. And he said, behold, now I know. If he's now I know, then it must have been somewhere in the past. He wanted to know. He wanted to know the true and living God. He wanted to know the truth. So he says in verse 15, Behold, now I know that there is no God in all the earth but in Israel. Now, therefore, I pray thee, take a blessing of thy servant. Does God know everything? God knows. And he knows what it takes to work in people's lives. Do you believe that God may be working in your life? Did you know because he wanted to know the truth, God may allow him to get Leprosy. That God may have allowed him to take that little girl captive into his home. So that she could make one little statement that went into his ears. If you only knew the man of God. The man of God has something he can do about this. Did you realize that there's times when you may have questions about certain things in life. And God is going to answer but he doesn't answer it the way you think. Did you know that that widow woman, here she is with a, a child and she's wondering how she's going to get the next meal. And she doesn't know how God works in all these matters. But lo and behold, down to the last thing, and the man of God says, do this. She could have said, I will not. Why should I give you my last morsel of food when that's all we have? But she did. Some reason she believed. She trusted. God worked a miracle with her that maybe he didn't do with somebody else. Because there might be a reason. I don't know the reasons. I just know that every person in this room, God is working in your life whether you see it or you don't see it. You may be totally oblivious to the hand of God working in your life. Remember, if you put everything into God's hands... It won't be long before you'll see God's hand in everything that you have. The longer I live, I can't wait till the next day to see what God is going to do today and tomorrow. Because I have watched him in the past. And it has convinced me that the God of the past is the God of today and of the God of tomorrow. And he doesn't change. And he's just looking for somebody he can bless. God is looking for somebody that he can use. See, God wants people to know truth, but he will get you into a certain place when it might seem like this is the worst thing of all. Think about the widow woman. She had nothing by which she could deliver herself at her wit's end. Naaman, great man, great honor, but he's a leper. Why would God have to use something so severe to get some people to listen? I've lived long enough to watch that some people don't listen at all. 
unless God hits them over the head with a two before. Till God breaks your heart over something. And you'd be surprised what God can do. Take your Bible and turn to the book of Numbers. The book of Numbers in chapter 21. Numbers chapter 21. You know and I know that in the gospel of John in chapter 3 and verse 14 where it talks about as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of God be lifted up. You ever heard that before? Now, I want you just to take a look at this in chapter 21. Look there in verse 9. 21 and in verse 9. You see, they had people that were murmuring and complaining. Because a murmured complaint was a dead giveaway that their minds were not set upon the Lord. That they were not trusting in the Lord. So they complain and whine and pine and moan and groan and the Lord sent serpents among them. And the little serpents were poisonous serpents and they were biting the people and the people were dying. So he made the statement in verse 8. And the Lord said unto Moses, make thee a fiery serpent, set it upon a pole. And it shall come to pass that everyone that is bitten, when he looketh upon it, shall live. Moses made a serpent of brass, put it upon a pole, and it came to pass that if a serpent had bitten any man, when he beheld the serpent of brass, he lived. When he beheld it, he lived. And the children of Israel set forward and pitched in Oboth. Now, so they did what he said to do. And the people that looked. Now, what if he had said? Not only must you look at this brass pole, this serpent on this pole, but the moment you look, you're delivered. You're healed. What if he said, you got to look and keep looking. You got to look and keep looking. But if you don't keep looking, the snake's sitting right there ready to take you down. He didn't say that. One look was the cure. Every one of us need to understand we've all been bitten by a serpent. We have his poison within us. Satan himself, the Bible says we are children of wrath. It's part of our nature. We are naturally rebellious. We want our own way. We don't like somebody else telling us what we can and cannot do. By the way, you probably have heard this, but I'll just mention it to you. Now, you heard of Sir Lancelot? You heard of King Arthur? Yeah. Most people have heard a little bit about that. But when King Arthur, see, when he was young, he went too far away and got captured. And so the king of another country says, we're going to kill you, but we're going to give you an option. If you can tell me something that nobody else has ever been able to tell me. He said, what's that? Tell me what is it that women want? The real reason, the truth. He said, I've checked in my whole kingdom and nobody knows. He said, I'll let you go back. You find out. But on your word, you'll come back in one year. So he goes throughout the kingdom. He tries to find, does anybody know what a woman really wants? And nobody knew. Not really. And so it came down. He only had a couple days left. And so somebody told him, says, there is a witch that knows the answer. He said, well, I can't do that. I, I can't go to a witch. But it came down to where he went to see this witch. And she says, I know the answer. But I want to marry Sir Lancelot. 
Now, this witch was all bent over, hunchback, one tooth, you know, hag, straight, stringly hair, looked like it's been washed with motor oil. She smelled like a sewer. I mean, this is one of the ugliest women you've ever seen in your life. She said, I want to marry Sir Lancelot. He said, oh, I can't do that. One day left, and so Sir Lancelot heard about it and says, look, for my king, I will do anything. So he went and told her, he says, he'll marry you. She said, then I'll tell you what women want. He says, all right, what is it? He says, they want their own way. Says, That's it. A woman just wants her own way. So he went over to the next kingdom and told him, and everything was wonderful, and Sir Lancelot has to marry this old witch. So the wedding day came. They got home, and he's standing outside. He doesn't want to go in the house, but he goes into the house, and lo and behold, there stood before him the most beautiful woman in the world. He says, what, what happened? She says, because you let me have my own way. And so I decided I'm just going to be beautiful. So the moral of the story is if you don't let a woman have her own way, things are going to get pretty ugly. <laughs> Everybody wants to go their own way. It's part of our nature. But here in Numbers, uh, they were being bitten. He says, look and live. Not look and keep looking, but one look. And these illustrations are used in the New Testament. Now go to the Bible in the book of John, chapter 4. The Gospel of John, chapter 4. And you'll notice in verse 13 where he makes this statement about the woman who came to the well. Jesus came to the well too. They met. He said unto her in verse 13, Jesus answered and said unto her, Whosoever drinketh of this water shall thirst again. It means that you'll have to drink some more because it never really satisfies. You remember that old commercial? Chesterfield really satisfies. Then why they got to have another one? I've always wondered, every time I saw that little commercial, Maxwell, good to the last drop. I thought, what's wrong with that last drop? There's got to be something wrong with that last drop. Now, this isn't kids' mind, you know. Now that I'm older, I still don't understand it. But anyway, when he makes the statement, if you thirst, I got some water that you will never thirst again. Wouldn't it have been a shame if he'd have said to her, if you believe on me, you have everlasting life if you keep believing. But he didn't say that. And he didn't say, if you drink the water that I have and keep drinking, how would you like to get into the water spigot out there and you got to drink, but you can't quit. Because the moment you quit, you die and go to hell. Aren't you glad God is, has a little sense and a reasonableness? He says, if you drink this water one time, you'll never thirst again. It means you don't have to do it again. Naaman didn't have to get healed again. You see, when you talk about those people that were bitten, if you look... You live that moment. And it can't happen to them again after that, especially as far as the illustration goes, because he's using it to all you have to do is look and live. And as 
Moses lifted up the serpent, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that all who look to him and believe on him hath, present tense, right now, hath everlasting life. And then you can say, now I know. Now I know. I had witnessed to a guy yesterday, and I asked him, I said, did you know where you're going when you die? He said, well, I, I think I'm, I'm pretty good. When somebody says that, does that mean they really know they're going to heaven? No. After I explained it all, I said, now you understand? He said, yes. I said, now you know? Now I know. Now I know. Now, I want you to notice this. In verse 14, but whosoever drinketh of the water that I shall give him, never thirst. That means that not in the future. You can never thirst. You can never be condemned in the future. Because, you see, all your sins have been paid. You know what I love telling people? And sometimes they, it's amazing how they, I see it. I see what you're saying. The reason I can't go to hell today, or the reason I can't go to hell tomorrow, is because I don't have any sins to pay for. Christ paid for my sins. I don't have to pay for any. He paid for mine. I said to this person, I says, if I was to see you 10 years from now, and I asked you now, where are you going to go when you die? What would you say? He said, I'm going to heaven. But if I asked you, how do you know? He says, Christ paid for my sins. He paid for my sins. That's the only reason any of us are going. We must believe that. Now, I want you to go back to chapter 6. Back to chapter 6. He said some hard things here. And it was about eating his flesh and drinking his blood. You think, is this where the vampires come from, you know? And that's why you always see the movie you come out here and somebody wants to drink your blood and have everlasting life. But they got to keep drinking the blood. Now, this is a little bit different. Christ says, your fathers in the wilderness had manna, and they ate the manna. But he says, they are dead. He says, but I have some bread that when you eat this bread, you'll never hunger again. And he says there in verse 35, And Jesus said unto them, I am the bread of life. He that cometh to me shall never hunger, and he that believeth on me shall never thirst. You see, Jesus Christ taught eternal security. Jesus taught, once you're saved, you are always saved. There is no other salvation he talked about. That's why eternal security is not a separate doctrine in the gospel. It is the gospel. That is the good news. It's not good news to be saved just for a day or a week or a month or even a year. It's good news when you're saved forever. That's good news. Especially when it's free and he'll never cast you out and never lose you, as he says here. Now, so he makes a statement here. And I want you to see this. Look in verse 58. This is that bread which came down from heaven, not as your fathers did eat manna and are dead. He that eateth of this bread shall live for how long? And those who come to him shall never hunger. So once you come to him, you will be satisfied. There is no other thing that you have to do to be saved. And so once you come to Christ, he gives you eternal life and you're going to heaven. And so when he talks about if you eat my flesh or if you drink my blood, you have everlasting life. See what it says here in verse 54. Just look in verse 54 real quick. Whoso eateth my flesh and drinketh my blood hath eternal life. 
So it says it right there in the Bible. So you see, do I have to really eat his flesh and drink his blood? Now, there are some people in different religions that will say when you have communion, well, communion is like transubstantiation. It's Christ coming inside of you. So when you eat the bread and drink the juice, it's Christ coming in. That's how he gets inside of you. That is not true. That is not true. So when we talk about the blood of Christ or the body of Christ, we have to know what does he say about the body? What does he say about the blood? What does the bread do for me? And what does the blood do for me? They both must do something for me. Because he says in Leviticus 17, 11, the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given it to you upon the altar to make an atonement for your soul. He also says that the, um, without the shedding of blood, there is no remission for sin. And so the life of the flesh in the blood, so if he's going to give his life for me, he has to shed his blood for me. And his blood was not normal blood. His blood was precious blood, incorruptible blood. But notice something else. When he says down here in verse 61, 62, and so forth, he says, is this a hard saying? That, well, we, don't, that we don't get this. We, we just don't understand this. Christ knew that he was speaking to a mixed multitude. So that's why he says in verse 63, it is the spirit. Look at it. Verse 63. It is the spirit that quickeneth, that makes you alive. It's not my, my, my real blood or my flesh. It's not what this here represents. That doesn't, that's not what saves you. That's not what gives you life. We only do this in remembrance of what he said and did. We already know we have eternal life. So I'm not doing this to get it. I'm doing it because I already have it. And this helps me to remember. So that's why he says, do this in remembrance of me. A body hast thou prepared me. The body was like the bread that came. And God lived inside of that body. And he lived and grew up and he died. And the Bible says he bore our sins in his own body on the tree. He says he shed his blood for us. He died for us to pay for our sins. So you notice what he says here in verse 63. It is the spirit that quickeneth, the flesh profiteth nothing. The words that I speak unto you, they are spirit, they are life. So what did he say? He said that if I come to him, believing that he was God in the flesh, those that don't believe that come from a different spirit according to 1 John chapter 4. So we believe he came in the flesh in a literal body. And the word was made flesh and dwelt among us. And we beheld his glory. The glory is of the only begotten of the father. Full of grace and truth. And we believe that because Jesus Christ died on that cross. And shed his blood. Gave up his life. So that I could have eternal life. The words that he said. I'm to believe. I am to believe what he said. And to believe what he did. So when I say I believe on Jesus Christ, I'm not talking about just any Jesus. I'm talking about a specific Jesus. One that is God in the flesh. I'm talking about that one. I'm talking about the one that came into the world and died to pay for my sins. And God said, if I believed that, he would give to me as a free gift everlasting life. And he says, if you'll listen to my words and what I'm saying, 
You only have to do this one time. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth and keeps believing and keeps believing and keeps believing. But if you stop believing. <laughs> no, he said, he that believeth shall not perish. So if I come to Christ at any time in my life and I believe that he died and paid for my sins according to his promise, his words, I cannot perish. Means I cannot ever in the future go to hell. Impossible. But have everlasting life. I have everlasting life. I got that 53 years ago when I trusted Christ as my Savior. And it never has to be done again. So all the illustrations in the Word of God, the stories that God uses, prove this point. Now I know. Now I know. But if I was to ask you the question, do you know that you have eternal life? Do you know that you're going to heaven when you die? I do. How many of you know beyond a shadow if you died right now, you know you'd go to heaven? Let me see your hand. All right, put it down. How many know you go to hell? No, I don't raise your hand. It's a wonderful thing to know. Not hope. Maybe, perhaps, guess, but to know you have eternal life. The best news in all the world. Look up here real quick. This sin represents you and me, and the wallet represents sin. We all have sin on us. God loves us. Hates our sin, but he loves us. God loves you. Now he hates your sin. But the Bible says to pay for sin is eternal separation from God. Since everybody sins, everybody's condemned. But God loves us, wants us to go to heaven, to be with him for all eternity. But we can't because, see, heaven is perfect and God is perfect. And because of sin, we can't get in. So God did something we could not do. You see, he loves us. He hates what we do wrong, but we cannot change our nature. We could not even improve our situation. So God says it's not by works of righteousness, but according to mercy, he saved us. This hand represents Jesus Christ. He's the Lord God in the flesh, came into the world because he loves us, hates our sin because it separates us from him. So Christ took the sin paid for it on the cross, came back from the dead, and said that if we would believe that he did it for us, we'd get to go to heaven for all eternity. And the moment I believed it, this payment was put to my account, and I don't have any sins to pay for. I can't go to hell in the future. So there's only two places, heaven and hell. If I can't go to hell, where must I be going? I'm going to be with the Lord. And that's the best news in all the world. There's no tricks to it, no gimmicks. But if you're here this morning and you've never trusted Christ as your Savior, you can't absolutely say, I know I'm going to heaven. Why not settle it? Can you handle this? Is this too hard and complicated? I think you can handle it. Let's pray, shall we? Our Father, we thank you so much for loving us so much, for giving us the free gift of everlasting life. We ask your blessings upon each one here. And pray, Lord, that each one will understand because of what you did for us. We should always remember that, that we have eternal life, not temporary, and that we don't participate in the Lord's Supper in order to be saved, but because we are saved, we know what you did for us. We know what you said, and we believe it. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.